Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. It's now time for the sermon. We're going to be, so normally we do a narrative lectionary, and during that time we look at an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, show how they point to each other, and more importantly point to Jesus. And when I knew that I was going to be teaching this Sunday, I decided just to take what we normally do in the narrative and expand it out to a sermon because I am absolutely loving going through the book of Mark and the Psalms. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We'll be in Psalm 131 and then Mark chapter 5, 21 to 43. And so I'm actually going to start with Psalm, Jess, and this is Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead... I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. And then from Mark chapter 5, 21 to 43. When Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly. My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She'd spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. And having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, the flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd, and he said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, and James' brother. And they came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And he went in, and he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, And he entered that place where the child was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old, and at this, they were utterly astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you preserving your word and not just the beautiful psalms but also the story and mark would you help my words be beautiful true and right this morning we ask this name of the father son and spirit amen 
the best part of being an aunt, I think, is when I'm sitting down and one of my babies, without saying a word, not so much the oldest, she doesn't really do this anymore, but the, the middle and the youngest, they just come up and they climb on top of me. There's no conversation. They just want to come and snuggle with Aunt Nika. No talking, no playing, just them resting for a bit with their Aunt Nika. And it, it's often, I mean, it's just kids are always hanging on me. Like the number of times my nephew like sits on my head and I'm like, okay. But it's, it's the best feeling as an aunt because I know the reason why they're doing that is because they feel safe and loved and they're happy. And, and I just love it. I'm like, yes. And that's why I think Psalm 131 is such a powerful image because it's a weaned child, not a squirmy baby, you know, but a weaned child who's calmly, quietly sitting with his mama. It's such a beautiful image of what it means to be with the Lord. And so what does that have to do with our story today? What does a child, a, a niece or nephew, a child sitting calmly in their mother's bosom, what does that have to do with that story? Well, we're going to dive into it, and I think by the end I'll be able to show you how they both point to each other. And of course, all of this points to Jesus, but I think it points very powerfully to many of us in the room. And so this story of Mark, it's, it's a beautiful story. And Mark sometimes gets a bad rap. From scholars. For a long time, people have said, well, it's the earliest gospel. It's not super sophisticated. So we're better off studying Matthew. You know, he's a tax collector. Luke, who was a lawyer. Luke has much better Greek. But thankfully, Mark is starting to get his due. There are people who are just becoming Markan scholars and starting to go, wait a minute, this is a pretty incredible piece of literary work. And one of the ways that Mark is really brilliant is he does what we call Markan sandwiches. He takes one story, puts another one smack dab in the middle of it, and then finishes his first story. So an example of this in Mark 3, he starts by talking, or his family comes and confronts him because he's not Jesusing the right way. And then he, in the middle of that, Mark puts a story where Jesus is teaching about a divided kingdom cannot stand. And then he puts the bread on the back of the sandwich and then talks about his family again, saying you need to stop what you're doing. If you don't think that heightens what his family's doing about a divided kingdom, that's what Mark's doing here. And so he does this multiple times. I think there's maybe six or seven of these Markin sandwiches. And so that's what's happening here with our The bread is Jairus' story. Jairus, a synagogue leader, comes to him, a man of great privilege and power, comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter. On the way, we meet the meat, which is our hemorrhaging woman, the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And then when that story's over, we get back to the Jairus story. And looking at these two stories, you can see why Mark links them. Like at first blush, you go, what do these have in common? But when you look at the details of it, you realize this woman bled for 12 years. The daughter's 12 years old. The woman is a social outsider and Jairus is a social elite. This woman's the only person Jesus ever calls daughter. And this is Jairus's daughter. And this woman's ritually unclean because of her menses. And this girl would be ritually unclean because of her death. And, and these are just a couple of examples. There's many more if you look through the story, which I'd encourage you to do. And so our bread, it starts with this powerful man. He, he has social cachet. And you can see what privilege and social cachet do for you because he walks directly up to Jesus, right in front of Jesus. And then he falls at Jesus' feet. And he's desperate. He's a desperate father with a sick daughter. And Jairus, interestingly, is the only character outside of Jesus and the inner disciples that we know his name. We don't know the woman's name. We don't know his daughter's name. We don't know his wife's name. But the important guy, we know his name. So Jairus is an important man. And he comes to Jesus. And he's a religious, important man. 
And Jesus says, absolutely, I'll go with you. So they go. But on the way, our desperate woman shows up. And Mark goes to great lengths to show such a powerful, sorrowful figure she is. She bled for 12 years. She suffered under many doctors. Which, by the way, Luke is a doctor, and he doesn't put that part about doctors when he tells the story. I'm like, bruh, your people messed her up. But anyways, <laughs> suffered under doctors. She spent all the money she had. And so now she's not only bleeding, but she's also poor and bleeding. And through it all, he tells us she got worse. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, fellas, I know many of you don't enjoy talking about women on their menses. But if you love a woman, you're going to have to talk about it. And if the scriptures talk about it, then we should talk about it. And so I just ask a woman what this story feels like when she hears that she would be bleeding for 12 straight years. Ask any woman you love how, how painful that story is for us. And we don't even live in a world of ritual uncleanliness. This is a bleak, hopeless story. But she hears about the healing powers of Jesus. And rather than coming up before Jesus like Jairus would, she tells herself, if I just touch his clothing, I'm not going to presume to come up in front of him, but if I can just touch his clothing, which is a very common belief in the ancient world. She's not Depending, she's not saying some magical formula as if his clothing has power, but there was a belief that any person who had power it could be sent through the clothing. It's why in the book of Acts, when Paul is praying over the handkerchiefs and they're sent out and people are healed, that's the idea, is that the clothes contain the power that the person does. And so she tells herself, if he's powerful enough to heal, then maybe I can just sneak up behind him and just, just t- maybe. So she does, and instantly instantly she's healed when she touches Jesus. And Jesus, having sensed it, says, wait, who touched me? And I love the disciples' response. They're like, bruh, everyone, look around you. Do you not see the crowds? Like, I imagine the disciples all the time, like, this guy walks on water, but he doesn't know who's touching him. Like, I'm sure they were like, what in the world? But Jesus is persistent, and he says, no, 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 no. Who touched me? And the woman comes with fear and trembling. And that's when Jesus says the most incredible thing to her daughter. Go in peace. Which that go in peace phrase, it's a a phrase they would use in the Old Testament as well. It's more than just like you're good. It means like go in flourishing, go in wholeness, go be restored to the fullness of your life. Your faith has made you well. Not my clothing, your faith is what made you well. No more bleeding. No more being ritually unclean. No more inability to participate in social worship. No more ostracizing. No more stigma. No more of any of that. It's an absolutely incredible moment. And then Mark doesn't even let us enjoy it because the very next sentence we get back to our gyrus. Incredible moment. And then Mark's like, oh, hey, the girl died. And we're just like, oh, really? And it feels like a punch to the gut in our story. And at this point... We've seen that Jesus can heal sicknesses. At this point, he's healed demoniacs. He's walked on water. We've seen him do incredible things like calming the water, but death? Death. Have we finally met an enemy that Jesus can't conquer? We haven't seen it yet. 
And can you imagine how Jairus must have felt? He comes to Jesus, falls down before him. We saved my daughter, yes. And they go on the way because Jesus stops to deal with this woman. So I don't know, but if I were Jairus, I would have been mad. I just, look, my little girl was dying. That woman could go one more day. She could walk with us, but why are you stopping for her? Do you know who I am? Do you know how important this was? I asked you for help. But Jesus invites Jairus to come further in. Come, come to my bosom, Jairus. Look at me. Jairus, I'm inviting you to replace your fears with faith. Jairus, look at me. I know the world's spinning. I know you're beckoned to doubt. I know this is hard. But the same faith that brought you to me the first time, hold on to it. Jairus, hold on to it. Come sit in my lap like a weaned child, Jairus. And he does. It's amazing. They get to his house. The professional mourners are there. And this is a common practice. They're professional. They're paid. Even the poorest of people would pay for mourners when someone dies. So the fact that there are so many, there's like this huge noise speaks to Jairus' wealth. And it's also why they can so quickly move from mourning to derision. Jesus says to them, hey, she's not dead, she's asleep. And they're like, okay. And so he moves them out of the room. And it's Jairus, Jairus' wife, Jairus' daughter. Again, we don't know any of their names, but Jairus's. And the insider disciples, and they're in the room, and Jesus says, get Talitha, they translate it little girl, but it's an Aramaic word that also means like little lamb, like lammy, like lammy, get up. It's a word that they would use for children. And immediately, just like our hemorrhaging, immediately she gets up. Immediately Jesus conquers death. Jesus is not like Elijah or Elisha who in the Old Testament come across dead children and they're able to raise them from the dead. But each time they need God's guidance, they need to pray to God, they need help. They don't have the authority to raise the dead. But Jesus, with the word of his mouth, can create life. What does that remind you of? Shout out Genesis 1. He just says, get up. And death is no more over this girl. And then I love the ever-compassionate Jesus says, why don't you give her a snack? I think dying famished her. Go ahead and give her something to eat. Like that little detail at the end. So what are we to learn from this Mark and say? If that's the sandwich, what does Mark want us to learn? Well, I think the first thing that we're meant to learn is that Christ can overcome any foe. The first thing we're to learn is that Christ can overcome any foe. Right now in the Gospel of Mark, if you were reading through Mark 1 through 5, you would realize Mark is trying to show that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And the way that Mark is doing it is he's trying to demonstrate all the ways Jesus has authority. And so earlier in Mark, Jesus has healed the -the run-of-the-mill sicknesses. You got flu, no biggie. You're good. Get back to what you were doing. But Mark has been ratcheting up the dial, right? In Mark 5, Jesus is already, prior to Mark 5, he's already, he's already cast out demons. But in Mark 5, we meet the demon-possessed of all demon-possessed. My name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a military term meaning the thousands. And that story of Jesus casting out Legion into the pigs and flying up, this is right before our story. And then we meet this bleeding woman. That's not a run-of-the-mill illness. 12 years and Jesus immediately healed. And now we come in front of death. What's interesting, in the next chapter, Jesus will go to his hometown and they have no faith. None. After he's raised a girl from the dead. And she's utterly flabbergasting given what he's done in front of the presence of all these witnesses. So Mark is even saying, even when he raises people to the dead, they're going to be doubters. But Mark is ratcheting up, and he's telling us this sandwich. And by putting these stories together, he's telling us, whatever problem you're facing, Christ is greater. 
Christ is greater and more powerful than every foe. You have pain, Christ is greater. You have debt, Christ is greater. Are you lonely? Christ is greater. Do you have a closed womb? Christ is greater. Do you have self-hatred and shame? Christ is greater. Do you have a past full of brokenness and heartache? No, Christ is greater. He is greater than any foe that you are facing in your life. If the greatest and last enemy is death, and Christ can command with the breath of his mouth, get up. What foe are you facing that Christ can't conquer? What are you up against that Christ can't defeat? Now, does it always work out that in this lifetime our enemies are vanquished? No. And that is the great mystery of our lives. Why do we suffer so much in a world where Christ has conquered death? It is a great mystery. But this story does show us that it's the first fruits. Jesus conquering this death is a first fruit of a day coming when we will watch every foe of ours, all the death, all the violence, all the suffering, all the hatred, all the hurts, all of that will get conquered and redeemed by Christ. If you think raising a little girl from death into a life that is still perishable and mortal is amazing, and you should, wait till you raises us imperishable and immortal. What he did in part with Jairus' daughter, we're going to experience in full, and then suddenly all those foes will disappear, and we'll get to watch it. We'll get to watch it. This is the first fruits. And so until then, we, Mark is telling us, bring Christ into every one of your battles, all your foes. Because if you think you should fight them alone, I have such good news for you. Christ is stronger than you. He loves you more than you love yourself. And he's been defeating enemies since he showed up. Christ can defeat any foe. And Mark is beckoning us to allow Christ to be the fighter on our behalves in our lives. The first thing the sandwich teaches us is that Christ is greater than any foe. The second thing that he's teaching us from these sandwiches is that Christ is concerned for the least of these. To be a poor Bleeding woman in the first century would mean a life of great heartache and very few privileges. She's unfit to go to temple, which means that when all these really fun experiences of going up to celebrate Passover, the Feast of Booth, she can't go because she's never ritually clean. Now, cleanliness and uncleanliness, they're not moral categories. There's nothing wrong with what is going on, but it does mean she cannot go because she never reaches a place of cleanliness. And every person that she touches, she makes ritually unclean. Now, there's easy ways to become clean again. They go in a boat and they come out. But think of the stigma. Every time you hug someone, they're unclean. No one else carries that with them. You can't go up to Jerusalem into the temple and worship your God. You can't be around people without putting a burden upon them to be clean. And to be sick and tired and broke and hopeless, no one is looking at her life going, she's got a lot going for her. No one. Which explains her most likely reason for coming up behind Jesus to touch his clothing. She risks being rebuked for making the rabbi unclean. By touching Jesus, she makes him ritually unclean, and she knows that. She's known this for 12 years, and she's about to go touch a rabbi And women and men in general are not in the habit of touching each other in the ancient world unless they're family. She risks a lot. 
So what she does is really bold and really beautiful. And Christ calls her to even deeper faith. When he says, who touched me, it's a little bit like when God's in the garden and he says, where are you? He knows. It's an invitation to come deeper. So it's an invitation to come to me. He's beckoning a stigmatized, downtrodden woman to come forward so that she can receive a very public added girl and a very public decree of peace and goodness and shalom over her life. Faith is the language pleasing to God, and he tells her that her faith, not her desperation, but her faith has healed her, and he says it in front of the presence of many witnesses after he calls her daughter. What an incredible moment for her to be made clean, but also to be praised by the one who made you clean, the one whose words carry so much power. So I just want you to take a minute, like just take a beat and imagine the Savior of the world is looking at you after you have just potentially defiled him, and he's clearly aware that his power has left him, so you took his power without his permission, if you think about it. You presumed a whole lot here, and now he's calling you out, and he's saying, who did this? Can you imagine? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? And then Jesus goes, daughter, go in peace. Not, you know, your hands are a little icky, and I could have saved you from afar. Next time, don't touch me. You know what that, not going to go in the big boat. You really set me back here a day's time. Nope. Daughter, go in peace. Your faith is pleasing to me. Jesus welcomes her touch. And he welcomes our touch. He welcomed her in his presence. And he welcomes us in our presence. He welcomes our faith. He welcomes all of us to him. In Mark 5, all three people are ritually unclean. You can't be in tombs without being unclean. You can't be bleeding without being unclean. And you cannot be dead without being unclean. And he touches all three of them, heals all three of them, welcomes all three of them. He is not concerned about what the world tells us will keep us away, but instead he moves toward them and touches them, and welcomes them. Christ is approached by a wealthy, influential man, and yet he stops for this woman on the midst of that journey. Jairus' daughter was in peril, but Jesus shows us in the story, all women are his daughter. Jairus, your daughter is important, but this daughter of mine is important too. All women, all daughters are important to Jesus, not just the ones with powerful daddies. So some of us, look, if we're being honest, some of us have been dealt hands that make life a little easier. It's just fact. We can pretend like it's not true, but we can also just say, look, the ball bounces my way, right? I was born into more money, or I had more access, or the color of my skin has afforded me opportunities, or my brain, it doesn't have any mental affliction. I don't, I'm not bent towards anxiety, depression, or addiction, right? I have my health. I was born with no disabilities. Like, I'm good looking. Like, whatever the things are that some of us, we just navigate life a little bit easier than that. None of that matters when you stand before Jesus, All that fades away when you stand before the all-loving, all-compassionate, all-merciful God of the universe. There are no rich daughters. There are no American daughters. There are no pretty daughters, articulate, able-bodied daughters. They're just daughters when you stand before God. There are just children who stand before an infinitely loving Father and Savior. 
who looks upon each one of us with the same affection, the same desire, the same never-ending, never-wavering, never-waning love. And he would stand over every one of us and go, that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine. There's just daughters and sons. And so maybe when I read this story to you, you identified with the bleeding woman. You thought, you know, I don't think I'd walk right up to Jesus. I think I would sneak up from behind, right? Maybe I feel a little bit like an outsider. Maybe, maybe I just wouldn't be out in front with the crowd. I have such good news for you. If that's how you relate, Christ loves you. Christ loves you. Christ loves you. And you need not run up from behind. In fact, you not only have permission, you have invitation and the delight of your Savior if you will just run toward him and into his arms and rest your head upon his bosom and know that you belong there just as much as every other daughter belongs there. But the first thing the sandwich teaches us is that Christ is greater than any foe and the second thing is that Christ cares for the least of these. The last thing the sandwich teaches us, along with Psalm 131, I know you think I forgot, but I didn't is this teaches us that Christ, yes, he welcomes the lowly, but he also welcomes the exalted. But Psalm 131 and the story teach us how the exalted, the mighty, must come. Like I said, Psalm 131, it's so beautiful. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent, which means it's one of the Psalms that the people, when they're traveling up to Jerusalem, would recite together when they go to the festivals. And this Psalm, very interestingly, it contrasts faith with pride. Not faith with doubt, faith with pride because for some people what gets in the way of their faith is not doubt it's their own pride their own prowess their own abilities their own might and so David this is a psalm of David he says I'm not arrogant and I don't concern myself with two things too great for me that phrase is it the gist of the Hebrew phrase is I don't pursue things that are too great for humanity the psalm is like I said a psalm of David and and David and God appoints David to be king So it's not saying, hey, I don't pursue great things. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that I don't pursue things beyond a human's ability. I don't pursue things that belong to God. I don't presume to do things that only God can do. Instead, I just sit in God's lap and put my head against his bosom and I trust in him. So it's contrasting faith with pride, not faith with doubt. It's saying instead of deluding yourself into thinking you can fix your own problems, Humble yourself and come to God by faith. The downtrodden, they often trust God because they have no other option. Where else am I going to go? But the powerful, the Davids, the Jairuses, they often trust in their wealth, their influence, their connections. And Psalm 131 says, don't try to be God. Have faith and sit with God like a weaned child, trusting God, not yourself. Like I said, Jairus is a man of power, and he's the only named one in the story. And he comes right up to Jesus and asks for help. And that's awesome. That's faith. But when his daughter dies, Jesus beckons Jairus, come even closer. Jairus, come even closer. Do the only thing you can do right now, Jairus, and that's have faith. Your power will not help you now. So have faith in me. Come, rest your head right here. Jairus, Trust in me, not your power, not your wealth, not your privilege. Come sit with me. And like I said, Jairus does. It's amazing. And he gets to witness a miracle too great for words. His daughter is restored to him. 
It's unbelievable. And so maybe when I told you this story, you relate more to Jairus. You would have marched right up to Jesus, fallen in front of him and said, help me, right? Maybe that's how you have, have moved in your life. Great, great. But this sandwich, along with Psalm 131, teaches us that faith is the language pleasing to God. And Psalm 131 and Jairus show us that those of us who live life able to usually bend the world our way because we have access to things that most of the world doesn't, those of us who can bend the world are beckoned to come to God like little children. You're not going to bend the world this way, Jairus. You cannot bend death. It welcomes us to be like the woman and his daughter, to crawl up into God's lap and to trust him like a child, trust her mama for protection, for love, for provision. So to the mighty in this room, just get low. Crawl into God's lap and rest your head against his chest and ask him to do for you what the world will tell you. Your money, your talents, your connections can do for yourself. Do not be fooled. Quiet the world and quiet your soul and rest in God and ask him to intervene. And so what's our big so what? Faith is the language pleasing to God. Faith. In these stories, they're all about faith. This entire time, it's all about faith. And faith is an invitation to come to God, to rest your, hand, your head upon his bosom, to crawl into his lap and to ask God what you cannot and should not do for yourself. So whether you're lowly or you're mighty, God welcomes you. But the entrance is always the same. It's always the same. You're going to come by faith. There's no other way to come. By faith. We trust that God wants all of us, even those of us who feel like we're at the bottom of the rung, to run to him, to come to him, to jump into his loving arms. And by faith, we trust that God welcomes the mighty to also run and come into his loving arms, run into his loving arms. But the only way you're going to get there is by faith. So all of us, wherever you're at on the social ladder, let's run into his loving arms today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word and by showing us that faith pleases you. Would you give us faith? Not just to trust that your son is who he says he is on the cross, but also that you are who you say you are when we face foes, when we face trials, when we face difficulties. Help us to all come, quiet our souls, and trust in you. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.